0: Hey everyone and welcome back to Pucks and Pages.
1: My name is Steven, that is my book-loving wife, Liberty.
0: We're a married couple with different interests and we try to bring each other into our hobbies by discussing the latest news in both books and sports.
1: And today is the book episode.
0: Or, like I said last time, this is where we try to help you better communicate with your co-workers, whether they're a sports enthusiast or a bookworm, at least you'll find something you can discuss with them. Correct. Or at least that's the goal. Yeah. So we'll dive straight into the book news. And one that I thought would catch your eye as well as mine, Harry Melling, who is best known for playing Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter films, or as we more recently saw him, the bad guy in the old guard movie.
1: Yeah, it was kind of weird
0: is set to play a young Edgar Allan Poe in the upcoming movie, The Pale Blue Eye. I
1: could kind of see this, like, I I can picture it.
0: If he were in the same physical form he was when he finished Harry Potter, no, but he slimmed down a lot over the years, and I think he could make a good Edgar Allan Poe. It is the Netflix adaptation of Louis Bayard's novel of the same name, Scott Cooper is set to write the script and direct the movie. And according to Deadline, Cooper has been trying to get The Pale Blue Eye produced for more than a decade. I don't know what the struggle there was, but that's a long amount of time.
1: That is a pretty long time to get something made.
0: And The Pale Blue Eye will be produced by Cross Creek Pictures. They also have Christian Bale set to star alongside Melling as a detective trying to solve murders that occurred at the West Point Military Academy in 1830. Because he was at West Point at one point.
1: Because he's Batman.
0: I meant Edgar Allan Poe was there at one point. Yeah. But the detective will partner with Poe to close the case. And I feel like I have to suspend my disbelief a little bit because I feel like you'd have the military police solving murders, but at the same time, maybe they didn't have military police at West Point in 1830?
1: I would imagine military police have existed as long as the military has because it's kind of necessary.
0: Yeah. But I think this could be interesting. I haven't read The Pale Blue Eyes, so who knows? Right. But speaking of adaptations, the book Crying in H. Mart will be adapted into film by Orion Pictures. Stacy Schur and Jason Kim are set to produce the film. The book is Michelle Zauner's best-selling memoir, and it details her childhood growing up as one of the few Asian-American kids at her former Oregon school. It also recounts her time spent at her grandmother's apartment in Seoul, Korea, her work within the indie music scene on the East Coast, and how she met her husband.
1: If you don't know and you're oblivious to the world... I do know, but go ahead. H-Marts are Korean supermarkets. We actually have one.
0: That's not what I thought you were going to say, but yeah.
1: Oh, okay. So, like, it's interesting. Crying in a grocery store. <laughs> Basically. Yeah.
0: Zauner is also known within the music scene as the front woman in the indie rock band Japanese Breakfast, which is what I thought you were going to say. Okay. And the band will be producing the Crying in H Mart film soundtrack. Interesting. I feel like that could be a decent soundtrack as opposed to all the ones that are sort of boring or just the same. And the funny news out of the book community this week that I think you will actually enjoy. Okay. A book that was nearly 52 years overdue was recently returned to the Kokomo Howard County Public Library in Indiana.
1: It's a long time.
0: 52 years, yeah.
1: That's insane. I don't even want to know what the fees would be on that. Like, holy crap.
0: I'll tell you. The book Little Men by Louisa May Alcott was mailed from New Mexico along with a letter and a donation from the woman who had checked the book out when she was 11 years old. It was due to be returned on July 31st of 1969. God. The woman who had taken out the book said that she fell in love with it and ended up keeping it past its due date and it ended up staying with her throughout her family's multiple moves growing up. Yeah. She had recently found it while going through some books at her home library and she told the local newspaper that the donation wasn't enough to cover any late fees if they had compounded over the years, but that maybe it'll keep them from being mad at me.
1: At a certain point you feel like they just wrote it off. They're just like you They know did. What? They yeah. just
0: according to the article that I read, the librarian that they talked to said there's no note of the missing book anywhere in our systems. Because that was before computers. I was going
1: to say it was the paper system at that point in time.
0: So I'm sure they just wrote it off at the time. But the librarian actually said that nowadays they don't do late fees for children's or young adult books at their library. But even if they did do a late fee for that book, they would have stopped at like $5, I think. So
1: I I would say you'd probably stop at whatever the cost of the actual book was at that point. So at least you recoup that. But like...
0: I feel like I did this at one point. I don't remember what the book was, but I remember I was supposed to return it to the library and I didn't. Though, we don't currently have any library books in our home, so I don't know what happened to it. Yeah. Maybe my mom returned it behind my back at some point.
1: We've bought books from libraries, but not...
0: That's a library sale that's yeah. different. Yeah. But, I mean, that was very nice of her.
1: Yeah. She didn't her have to a Her guilt was getting to
0: her, you could tell. Yeah. I just like that the little old lady was like, I didn't want the librarians to be mad at me. That would be me as an old lady if that happened. Yeah. But the biggest news, or the news that made me the happiest this week, is that Shadow and Bone has been greenlit for a second season.
1: That is exciting.
0: On Monday, June 7th, Netflix made the official announcement, and I promptly tweeted it. So make sure you're checking out our Twitter, because we also post there. When we're not recording? Yeah. The show, which is based on Lee Bardugo's Grishaverse, premiered on Netflix on April 23rd and made it to the number one spot on Netflix' top ten list in 79 different countries. I believe it. That is very many different countries. For this second season, being adapted by showrunner Eric Heisserer, in collaboration with Bardugo, who is also an executive producer, the beloved cast Jesse May Lee... Archie Renault, Freddie Carter, Amita Suman, Kit Young, Danielle Galligan, Callahan Skogman, and Ben Barnes will all return with some new characters. And someone said something on Tumblr right after the news got released that has not left my brain. And it's because they're doing the mashup, so they're not doing. All of the Shadow and Bone books and then Six of Crows, they're kind of meshing some of that together so that we're getting Six of Crows characters during the stuff happening in Shadow and Bone. And someone said, imagine Stormhound from Siege and Storm interacting with Jesper Fahey and my brain broke because the arrogance, the sarcasm, the wit, the fashion sense, like it all would just, the world would implode. I feel like the world would implode.
1: I, I don't think the world would implode, but I understand This you're... fictional
0: world would implode. <laughs> not the real one, just the fake one. Yeah. But overall, the thing I'm most looking forward to in the second season, because we are, again, not sure how the Six of Crows characters are going to interact with them this time, I'm most looking forward to Nikolai Lantsov, who yeah. is a um, major character throughout all of the verse from there on. He has his own duology, so... He's kind of important. Yeah. But we're going to have to wait to get it. So, like, I'm excited, but I'm trying not to be, like, overly excited because I'm just going to have to wait. Womp womp. Womp And ending on that sad note, we'll move on to the tag.
1: Oh, that's fun. Didn't get any of the information for this one, so this will be an exciting time for you guys.
0: This was just me pulling questions from other tags. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully you'll be able to answer some of these, but the one that you have to be worried about is the tag that we're doing next week, which is the mid-year book freakout tag that everyone's starting to post on the book community that everyone does towards the end of June. So I'm definitely going to have to send you those questions before then.
1: I would appreciate it. giving me some time to practice.
0: (laughs) But since I just pulled this one together, we'll see how you can do. Yeah. What character would you bring to a family event as your fake partner?
1: it. should be a pretty easy question. I feel like I'd probably bring, like, Hermione. I feel like that's the easiest off-the-cuff choice because it's like...
0: She would get along with parents. She would
1: get along with people. Yeah, I don't think it would be, like, a really crazy thing.
0: Well, I answered this question two different ways. So the first one I said, if I want my family to actually like this person... I would pick Liam from Plot Twist by Bethany Turner, which I read somewhat recently, and that's probably why he came to mind. But he's one of the few, like, first of all, men that are roughly the correct age, but also that's good, a decent person. Yes. Because, <laughs> like, with books, you have to have some court of, some sort of conflict. So you don't always read about the best people. So if I wanted them to like him, Liam from Plot Twist. If I would rather get a reaction out of them... And I don't care if they like him or not. I I hope they don't. I would choose Victor Vale from Vicious by V.E. Schwab. Because, like, even if he can have nice manners and whatever, he can still, like, you can tell there's something wrong with him.
1: And you'd want your parents to know that there's something wrong with him?
0: I mean, if I want to get a reaction, yeah, obviously. Uh. <laughs> that is how my brain works. Clearly. We all know morally great characters are my favorite, so I just want to hang out with Victor Vale anyway.
1: I'm not shocked.
0: <laughs> what is a book that takes place during the summer? I don't know. You tend to read things that happen all the time. Yeah, year round. Technically, some things happen in Harry Potter during the summer.
1: Yeah, like the going to like the um, Quidditch World Cup, like that kind of stuff was summertime technically.
0: But like an overall book that just takes place during the summer, I don't know that uh-huh. you've. I
1: don't think I've read one. Yeah.
0: For me I picked Second Chance Summer by Morgan Mattson. Obviously that <laughs> happens in say, the summer. If it
1: didn't take place in the summer and it's in the title False Advertising.
0: Second Chance Winter. Yeah. Um Or Sun Kissed by Casey West, which I read more recently and I enjoyed more than Second Chance Summer, but I couldn't not pick the first one. Yeah. So this next question needs to have some sort of like spoiler warning, like all our book episodes need, but this one in particular, because the question is, who's a book character you think didn't need to die?
1: If there's a couple that come to mind that I really would have preferred didn't die in certain situations, but obviously the easiest pick is the other Weasley twin. You know, we didn't Do you those. know which one? I don't off the top <laughs> of my head. I was going to ask you, but I I felt silly about a, it. But a
0: good way to remember is that George gets injured at the beginning of the book and Fred, and Fred, Fred dies is, at the end. Yeah. So, so Fred. Fred yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I I feel like there was no reason for it to happen other than to just jack Shock. you up at your heartstrings
0: right well it's a moment of like lightheartedness happening in the midst of this battle and then all of a sudden you're like shoved back into reality because it's a moment where he's joking around with percy and he's like are you making jokes percy what is happening and then he dies yeah and like i think the worst part is he doesn't get killed by a spell per se he's killed by the castle starting to fall in on itself and i'm like if there's any way for him to go, I feel like that's the worst. But that was not either one of my answers. So for me, I said Matthias Helvar from the Six of Crows duology was probably the most unnecessary death I've read in a while. I feel like that was just done to push a character into a plot in the sequel series. Or, I mean, she's in another series, but technically it's not a sequel. Anyway, another verse book, it pushed her forward in the plot. So that felt unnecessary and heartbreaking. But also, I'm going to say this name wrong, Avitus Harper from the An Ember in the Ashes series. This is a character that I didn't necessarily like him at first because he's kind of working with people that we don't like at one point and eventually he grows on you and you start to enjoy him and he starts to have a relationship with someone and I'm like starting to really like him and that final battle he dies and I'm like well that was a waste of emotions I just shouldn't like anyone what is a book you would put on your nightstand in order to impress someone if they came by your house
1: <laughs> um, I wouldn't, because I don't like clutter on my nightstand. It drives me crazy, the amount of stuff we have on ours right now as it sits, so, but, you know, most I gotta
0: have my heating blanket, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. Your heating blanket, your phone charger, the clock, the lamp. These lamp all sound important. like
0: completely normal things. <laughs>
1: yeah, I guess, yeah. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would put a book there just because I feel like it would just be more clutter.
0: What is a book you think you would use to impress someone then? Um, whether you actually read it or
1: not. Like a Stephen King book just because they're dense, like it just looks like a big book, be like, Yeah, I read that. Like or I'm reading that, like something Look
0: that, how big my book is. <laughs>
1: yeah, I guess. I don't know. It sounds so stupid, but like that's that's big what books I think are what, intimidating. That that would be like my thought process anyways. Either that or, like, one of the, like, fancier hardcover books that we have. Like, I feel like just something that looks nice, you know, and, I don't know, and dense, I guess, would be the two arguments.
0: I said some classic that I don't actually enjoy or that I haven't read yet. Yeah. So maybe The Count of Monte Cristo because it's actually on my TBR. and We have a pretty edition, but I have not read it. So, like, I don't know how impressive it is to own a pretty book, but that's what I would use. That makes sense. In sort of the opposite of that question, what is a book you would put in the bathroom for some light reading for when people are taking care of business?
1: <laughs> I don't know that I'd put them in the bathroom. I don't
0: like the reading in the bathroom thing. I think that's weird that some people do this.
1: Like, legitimately, I, a lot of times, like, it, I'm bothered by the fact that, like, habitually as humans, we bring our phones in with us. Like, I know I do that's it every now and gross. again, but like, I usually will just, like, turn on music or, like, silly videos and put it away from the toilet, like, nowhere near How gross
0: near are it. you? How gross that. are you?
1: I'm not gross. I'm just trying to keep it away from the risk of the Grossness. toilet. Of the gross, yeah, I guess. That everybody, as human beings, male and female, uses and causes in the restroom. So.
0: I was going to say the first book in the Murderbot Diaries, but then I realized that Murderbot does not deserve that. Yeah. But, like... It's a pretty easy read, and, like, it's very short, so, like, I feel like you could sort of dip in and out of it, but at the same time, like, why would I do that to them? They do not deserve that. And,
1: like, honestly, like, as a kid growing up, you never had books in the bathroom, like... Some people do. Well, you... More commonly, you see, like, magazines and things like that, like, this month's time or this month's this, you know, like...
0: Maybe it's asking what's a book you think is really crappy. Yeah, yeah. But I I figured you would need something light and easy to read while you're in there. So (laughs) maybe a romance. Since it's almost Father's Day, I thought this question was fitting. Who is your favorite book dad? And I realized how hard this question is because it's really rare for book dads to be present in books, let alone being a good dad. Yeah. I mean, there's one obvious answer that I tried not to use.
1: Well, obviously, like, Mr. Weasley is an easy out. Like, he's a great dad. And then, honestly, in Warcross, I felt like Amika's dad was like good, but had his his problems. But he tried to be good, even though he had his issues. Right. Yeah. And he always tried to make things better for her, even if it was at his own expense. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say I, I would say him.
0: I also really liked Cassidy Blake's dad in the middle grade Cassidy Blake series, which was the. Series about the kid who had the ability to see ghosts and her parents were ghost hunters. Yeah. And the dad was always very, like, analytical and understood the history behind everything. And the mom was the one that was more like, and here's a creepy ghost story. So I really enjoyed him and how, like, grounded in reality he was while the women in his life were obviously very much not. Right. And he was still really open to the things that they were telling him and their feelings but there's also america's dad in the selection series he was a pretty solid dad even though technically he dies in the second book he was also someone who was having his own sort of plot line while everything was going on with her because he was part of the rebellion and she didn't even know until after his death so he was a pretty solid dad who is your favorite furry sidekick
1: what was the dog's name from Vicious? Jeez.
0: Doyle? No, that can't be right. Dole. It's a measurement of pain. Got it. I thought Doyle for some reason. I knew that was wrong.
1: So I'd have to say, like, my favorite pet, it's close. It's between, like, Fang, I feel like, from Harry Potter, and then, honestly, I think my favorite is Dole, just because, like, I don't think he ever realizes he was truly dead, necessarily. Mm-hmm. And... It's just, like, so happy for the the extra opportunities that life, like, every dog would be, I guess, to an extent. Because, like...
0: He's just happy to see you. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And that's just a dog thing, I think, like, for the most part. And I I, I feel like that's probably why I'm attracted to both those two being, like, my favorites.
0: You're just glad someone's happy to see you. Yeah, absolutely. I said that I had a couple options. One was Timmerer from the Timmerer series by Naomi Novik. I've only read the first book, so I don't know how this character is later on, this furry sidekick, despite the fact that it's a dragon and he doesn't have fur. But who doesn't love a semi-sentient dragon? Right. I also liked Mr. Kindly from Nevernight, but that's probably one of the few things I actually liked in Nevernight. Right. It's like a shadow cat. Though I really did enjoy the way that dragons were presented in the House of Dragons by Jessica Cluess. My problem with that is obviously the author and the author's behavior on the internet, but it turned out that the dragons in that book weren't just domesticated animals, that they were their own sort of sentient beings. Up until magic failed them, then they became these pets. I enjoyed them. I'm never going to read another book about them, which is too bad, but. Another semi-difficult question is, what is a fictional place you would take a date to?
1: That's tough. That is a tough one.
0: I put the question in here and then had trouble answering the question. So if you can't come up with an answer, I won't be surprised. But
1: somewhere to take a date to, like in a fictional world, take a mm-hmm. date to.
0: I mean, you could do a cop-out answer and do like Madame Puddifoots from Harry Potter. I would not ever take <laughs> anybody to that place. It's so romantic.
1: It's so dumb. It is. No, I don't know that I really have a place that would be like stand out. To me, necessarily. Like, I tried to think back to insurgent-style books, but then at the same time, like...
0: It's pretty post-apocalyptic it's all, it's, there. Like,
1: it's mostly... Well, it's mostly Chicago, so I'm like, that's not fiction. It exists most of the right. time. So, I don't know. That's tough. I don't know that I have one for that.
0: I said that there's a spaceship at the beginning of these broken stars called the Icarus, which is a really fancy spaceship. If you have the money for it, you can go... And take a walk on the observation deck so you could see all the stars as you're floating through the galaxy. I'm like, that's romantic. So that would be a good one. What is a friendship group that you love more than any other friendship group?
1: I honestly like the vicious friendship group the most, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Like, I think they all bring something to the group and that makes them all important to the group. Whereas yeah. like a lot of friendship groups, there's sometimes people there are like, yeah, you're here, but why? What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I don't know if I just had these people on my mind because of the news from this week, but I picked the crows from the Six of Crows. I said that they're such poor damaged babies who lean on each other to get out of their situation. And I said, I know I talk a lot about Six of Crows and that you
1: do? Wait, what?
0: There are other great friendship groups out there, but it's the crows. And so like if you know, you know. You know. This one I should have had you look up because I don't know that you'll be able to answer it off the top of your head. But the final question of the tag is, what is a book you think deserves a better rating on Goodreads?
1: I don't really pay attention to other people's ratings on Goodreads, and I think that's probably why this is a tough question for me. But I really don't think I have one because, I, again, I don't, A, I don't pay attention to Goodreads' overall stars because I want to give it a fair opportunity. I don't want to be swayed by other people's opinions on it. And that's kind of the way I've always been, hence why, like, when they do these renditions of books to movie and, like, video games to movies, I try not to be like, oh, this is going to be garbage. I go into it going, like, this is a separate thing from all the other things. It's its own rendition. And in turn, I feel like that's the same way I treat books. Like, I don't really want to be, like, swayed with a review into being like, man, this is just an awful book. So I don't have one,
0: I guess. For my answer, I actually perused all of my books that I've read on Goodreads, right? and I picked Take Me With You by Tara Altabrando. and it's a sci-fi slash horror novel that I got an arc of in May of last year. It's about a group of people who are summoned to an empty classroom after school, and on the desk there's a box with words on the side saying, Do not tell anyone about the device. Never leave the device unattended. Take me with you, or else. As the rules get broken over time, the device retaliates and real people get hurt. And it was so good that I really wanted to get into this, like, combined genre of, like, sci-fi and horror. And there just really wasn't enough, in my opinion. You get it a little bit in the Illuminae files, but I've only read book one because, according to other people, the other two books in the series are just reiterations of the plot in book one. Got it. So I feel like there's not enough of that genre out there, but I feel like this is really good in that combined genre space because there were a lot of times when I was really scared and I always bought into the sci-fi of this and it's just not rated nearly high enough in my opinion. That makes sense. As for what I have been reading, I read The Dating Dare by J.C. Lee, It's a NetGalley arc that I got, and the book releases on August 3rd. It's an adult contemporary romance that I ended up rating four stars, which means I really enjoyed it. Tara Park and Seth Kim both come with romantic baggage, so during the game of Truth or Dare, Seth dares Tara to go on four dates with him and not fall in love with him. But it seems like they both get more than they bargained for when a bunch of wayward children and a skiing accident throw a wrench in the works. And I enjoyed the romance here and like everything that happens on the ski date will probably live in my head rent-free. So it was a really good romance. I can't usually say that about romance. Like normally it's just in and out. Nothing lives in my head. So yeah, it's really good. It's technically part of a series of contemporary standalone romances. So people who are side characters in one book get their own spotlight in the next or whatever. I also read two books this week that did a lot worse than the first book. So I started off on a high and ended on a low. So it was a roller coaster that only went down, my friend.
1: I'm sorry. It went up at first and then it went down. Yes.
0: So I read The Effort by Claire Holroyd. It is a 2021 release, so very new. It's an adult sci-fi slash apocalyptic fiction novel. I ended up rating it two and a half stars, a generous Two and a half stars. (laughs) This book explores what would happen if a huge comet starts heading straight towards Earth and a group of people from the international scientific community come together to either save humanity or watch its ruin. And I feel like that's misleading because while you do spend some time with the people who are trying to solve this giant worldwide problem, instead you spend so much time with characters who have no impact on the problem and cannot solve the problem. And so it's like, why am I with these characters when that is happening all the way on the other side of the world? It didn't make any sense to me. And with how short the novel is, I feel like you spend way too much time with characters who don't matter And way too little time developing the characters who do matter. Because, like, even the character that we spent the most amount of time with, I did not care about. That's tough. And so, like, the whole time I didn't care. It was a slog to get through just because it was so dry. And it was just, like, here are the factual details of the story and no, like, background information, the characters weren't well-developed. The world itself didn't need to be well-developed just because, like, it's the world as it was in 2019, which is the setting of the novel. So, though there were a couple decent references to the President of the United States being a problem with this, and I'm like, sounds about right. <sighs> the President in 2019 would have been a problem.
1: So you nailed that one on the head, least.
0: Yeah. And it also explores how humans outside of the scientific community who are solving the problem. Instead of trying to like lean on each other for support or going about their daily lives as normal, it turns into this apocalyptic wasteland where there's no electricity, there's no cell service, there's no internet. People are stealing and looting and people end up turning to cannibalism when the food runs out and there's a food shortage and Some of the stuff as it was happening, I'm like, oh, okay, that was way too similar to what happened last year with food shortages and people hoarding and stuff like that. That was, like, a little hard to read.
1: Toilet paper shortages.
0: Not in the book, but there were water shortages, like bottled water, since the water plants were now not functional. So, like, some of that she got pretty correct, but also, like, when did she write that part? Because it just came out this year, so who knows. Overall, it just was not a good time for me. And maybe if you're someone who enjoys drier sort of writing and you don't need to care about the characters, maybe you'll enjoy it more.
1: So if you like boring, bad books, you'll enjoy it.
0: Yeah, here you go. And then I read The Stolen Kingdom by Bethany Atazada. Atazada. That sounds wrong. It is a 2019 release. It's a YA fantasy novel that's pretty short. It's less than 300 pages, and I rated it 2.5 stars. This is the one that is an Aladdin retelling about a girl who's developing Jenny Powers, help her attempt to overcome the will of a king with his own Jenny Powers, trying to take her kingdom.
1: Are you saying Jenny or Genie Powers?
0: J-I-N-N-I.
1: Oh, uh, like Jin. Yes. Got it.
0: With an I at the end. Got it.
1: I was super confused. There are
0: definitely some Aladdin vibes, but overall the story was just too shallow for me. It seemed like it was just plot point to plot point. Every chapter was a new plot point. We got to get to this next point. And part of that was how short the novel was, but also part of it I think was definitely just writing style. And the characters I did end up caring about i feel like it was mostly because of situations they were in and not actual character development or exploration of the character and i feel like i'm not going to continue this series because it is book one of the series because i just don't care enough and i don't know i enjoyed the first hundred pages more than i enjoyed the last 200 pages And it was just a lack of world building, a lack of character development, and I don't know that any of that would get better with the rest of the series.
1: Yeah, if you can't even make character development exist in the first book, it's kind of doomed to an extent.
0: Especially since this series is all different retellings, so this one's an Aladdin retelling, the next one is a Little Mermaid retelling. So you're going to explore different characters in that one. You have nothing to build on then, and I don't know that I could care about a second set of characters in this series. Right. But I'm hoping to have a better time with this week's reading because I don't know that you could get a lot worse. But also this is my week of rereading this month, so I'll be reading The Host by Stephanie Meyer. Yes, I know it's a garbage book. Don't at me. I already told you not to at me about this book. It's a backlist book from 2008, and it's a YA sci-fi slash post-apocalyptic novel. Like I said, it's a reread for me. I read this once every other year or something like that. It's my comfort garbage. But the book is about... I'm trying to do this off the top of my head and not the synopsis because the synopsis is a little messy. It is about the world a few years after an alien race has come and taken over the planet. And they need the humans as hosts because they are such tiny and fragile creatures and they live a sort of parasitic life. And they take over the minds of the human host. They live out their lives through the human bodies. And then when the humans get too old, they transfer to new human bodies or they transfer off world to other planets. And there is a band of human resistance living in the Arizona desert, and they are trying to survive and sort of take back at least part of the planet because they realize that they are vastly outnumbered. And we follow one girl as she struggles to maintain her hold on her body as this alien is inserted to take over. So it's like host versus parasite.
1: Yeah. I've, I've always wanted to read this book just because it sounds like it would be good, but, like, I hear a lot of people bad-mouthing it, so I'm like, maybe it's not, but...
0: Well, I feel like you would have to go in with a knowledge of the problems inherent in Stephanie Meyer's writing. And as long as you know that, you can have a good time. But you need to understand, with Stephanie Meyer, she has issues with women's bodily autonomy and an issue with how some characters physically interact. Some of the men get really aggressive and physical, not abusive, but definitely like grabbing a girl's arm to try to pull her this way or that way, which is not okay anyway. Unless but, like
1: you're pulling her out from in front of a car, you know, right? Really right. time, but like yeah.
0: But I wouldn't necessarily call that abuse, but it's still wrong, and you know you need to understand that she has these things that are inherent in her writing from very many years ago, also from her more recent work that I've read there's also some of these issues though less so. So you just have to understand what you're getting into if you're gonna read the book and also you have to understand that she writes with a lot of romance and if that's not something you like it might not be something you want to read.
1: So we're checking that one off the list.
0: I honestly think you could have a good time with this. I think though after the first 200 pages is when you would start to really enjoy it versus the first 200 pages Got it. but I'm rereading it I enjoy rereading it is this the next great American novel of course not but (laughs) it is still something that I've read a lot over the years it has a lot of nostalgia for me and so I'll be reading that this week kind of to deal with the slumpy way I'm feeling now that I finish those two 2.5 star reads yeah And then I will be rereading Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. It's a backlist from 2017 and a YA contemporary novel. The book starts with the disappearance of a fugitive billionaire and the reward for his capture. But the main focus of the story is lifelong friendships, Star Wars fan fiction, and the struggle of Asa Holmes, who is a young woman navigating the ever-tightening spiral of her own thoughts.
1: I'm excited for this one a little bit, just because I've I've read a John Green book and I don't know. I'm, have I'm you a,
0: read a John Green? I feel like I have. They're all behind me. We can't see them. No. But which one did you read?
1: One of the ones that they turned into a movie. I feel like I read.
0: I mean, that does cut some out, but not a lot.
1: I don't remember which one.
0: Okay. I know I I know
1: I've read one, so we'll just okay. leave it at that.
0: I know you haven't read this one.
1: No, I have not.
0: And it's about a girl who has OCD, and it's fitting because John Green also has OCD. So I've read this before, and as I was going through to mark the place that you need to stop reading, I was like, I should have bought another copy because you reading this book is going to show you a lot of the things that I struggle with because there is so much marked in this book that I've read in the past that I feel like you're going to see me in a way you haven't seen me before.
1: I don't know that that's necessarily true. I have a decent grasp of what goes on in your brain, but not all of it. But that's after living with you for eight years. So I'm, and I'll adamantly admit that I am still learning things. Yeah. But like, what what am I supposed to expect in this situation like that? So.
0: But I definitely think before you read this, because you are reading it for the podcast, I don't know if we said that yet. I feel like you need to understand that it's supposed to be about one thing, but it's definitely not. Okay. And so it's supposed to be about her trying to find this billionaire to get the reward for finding the fugitive billionaire. But what actually ends up happening is an exploration of friendships and OCD and mental health and, like the synopsis says, the tightening spiral of her own thoughts because that is, like, the perfect way to describe what I personally go through dealing with my mental health. So I ended up rating this five stars. I think this will be the first five-star read of the year for me, even though it's a reread, technically. Yeah. So you'll be reading half of that this week. Correct. And we'll discuss that on the next episode of the podcast. But first, we have to discuss what you just finished. And you finished it so early in the week, I was so surprised. You finished it on, like, Tuesday.
1: I really wanted to finish it on Tuesday, uh, realistically, even on Monday, technically. But, you know, sleep was calling. Yeah. And I answered.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's not a call you ever ignore. <laughs> I ignore it sometimes.
1: I push it back sometimes. I get a little pushback. But then eventually, yes, I do pick up the phone. Yeah. Uh, I might let it ring through about two or three times. But but the situation really arose that I realized I wasn't going to have that much time on the back half of the week because of how screwed up my schedule was this week at work. And so I, in turn, had to finish. I didn't have a choice.
0: Yeah. But you ended up reading the back half of Wild Card, and it was a wild rat.
1: Yeah, it definitely got more interesting as things went along, obviously.
0: Where we left off, there was sort of this disconnect for Amika, because all of a sudden she's seeing a rift between Jax and everyone else working for the Black Coats. Right. Because she just helped save Tremaine, even though she's technically the one that shot him. And she just helped Amika get out without getting caught. And they end up connecting and going into the dark world. And that's where we left off last time. And so at this point, we're only two days out from the Warcross opening, or closing ceremonies, not opening ceremonies. They really have to figure their crap out because it's getting down to the water.
1: Literally down to like the last moments of opportunity to solve all these problems.
0: Yeah. So, Jax and Amika have entered the dark world, and Jax ends up taking her to what they're calling the Dark World's Fair. It's like the World's Fair in the regular world, but in the dark world. Right. And so there are illegal exhibits for sale, and Jax explains Taylor's history a little more in depth. And the fact that Taylor set up the Black Coats to hide her illegal dealings so that nothing could be traced back to the Japan Institute or to Taylor specifically. Yeah,
1: she was truly using the dark web to sell off a lot of things that she was working on that definitely did not have any support from the Technological Institute, so...
0: Yeah, and so the Black Coats are, like, a shell corporation that's used to funnel things through that aren't supposed to be, like, used at all. Right. And she explains that, you know, obviously the Black Coats being vigilantes was a lie. And that they're really mercenaries who will do anything for money. Right. And, like, I never bought the vigilante angle to begin with, but I don't know if you did.
1: I was on the fence about it. I felt like there was a possibility, but at the same time, it's like, she's clearly able to do all these things. She must have a lot of money, which means she's doing things that aren't very vigilante after all.
0: Well, a lot of money and a lot of power, so that has to come from somewhere. Right. And Jax also ends up explaining that Taylor lied when she said she wanted to get rid of the algorithm. Taylor really wants to control the algorithm and the power associated with that.
1: And then selling it to the highest bidder, basically.
0: Well, I think she would keep the algorithm, but then, like, this country wants looser reins on the algorithm. I'll do that for this much and that sort of thing. And it turns out that... In the Dark World's Fair, there is the Black Coats archive from every experiment, every mission, as well as every iteration of a memory, and it ends up duplicating all their files and everything like that. So it's like their cache of information. And this is when Sasuke's real history is revealed to Amika, and the reader, I think so as well. That he was a sick child who was put into an experimental program at the Japan Institute by his parents. But for the experimental program for terminally ill children, it's really a front for the experiment that Taylor wants to run. Right. And that Taylor is trying to find a way to basically become immortal. So through technology, she is working to find a way that a person's mind can be separated from their body. And, like, that doesn't sound like immortality to me. That sounds very scary.
1: I, c- I would agree with that. But she's testing it on Sasuke just because his health is already crap. Right. So worse comes worse, if he dies from this, it's not a big, giant loss.
0: They'll just blame the terminal illness that he has for that. But he is starting to act differently at home, so his parents want to pull him from the study because his health and behavior are worse. And Taylor ends up deciding that since he was the best candidate for the experiment, she will have someone kidnap him to keep him in her real, like, trial. And this is also when we find out that Taylor adopted Jax from an orphanage because she wanted a decent candidate for the experiment, which Jax was.
1: Yeah, she wasn't nearly as good as Sasuke, but still was a high-quality option.
0: Yeah, she's like a backup. Yeah. And she's considered too unpredictable to be a viable option at that stage, but they would use her if something happened
1: to To Sasuke. Yeah.
0: And in some of the memories following the revelations that we get, we see that he clearly does not want to be there, and that he's resisting Dr. Taylor, but that Taylor as we've already seen is very good at manipulating people Yeah, and gets him to go along with the testing as time wears on.
1: Yeah. It, it's very dark levels of manipulation that she's using though. It's not like it's just, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: But also during that time we see like this lighter spot for him, which is his friendship with Jax and how that's growing over time. And he learns from her that you can kiss someone that you like, like and that was a cute scene. Yeah, We also see him watching TV with Jax when he's a little older, and he sees Hideo on TV, and in the memory, he's clearly very excited to see his older brother on TV, and starts asking questions about whether Hideo is looking for him or thinking about him, and he very obviously still cares about Hideo.
1: Right, at that point, still very much connected.
0: But even though he's still really connected emotionally to his family, he ends up giving his scarf away to Taylor in exchange for a day off from testing, which I can imagine as a terminally ill person being poked and prodded every single day and having all these health problems, you really just want a day to not. Yeah. But he also uses the day off to try to escape the Institute and ends up getting caught, which I feel like this was a really hard scene for me to read because I'm emotional about him getting caught, but then Taylor sort of uses his relationship with Jax, or the friendship he has with Jax at that point, as like a, well, you can leave, but she's still here, and she's going to go through everything you went through if you leave, because she's our backup.
1: Yeah, he definitely is wired to really protect the ones that he loves. Like, that's just who he is in that stage anyways. Yeah. And so... As somebody who also has that problem, I understand that relation a little bit. Like, I I feel like I'm wired that way to an extent, you know. I would go above and beyond and take on whatever stresses and pains to try to make sure that the people I love don't have to deal with it. So, I get it. I get it from that perspective a lot.
0: And in the end, Sasuke ends up staying and continues with the study. But we flash forward a bit and see that he's being asked questions about his life and he answers all of them. He knows all the answers, but it's noted that his emotional reaction to certain things and certain people is just gone. Right. And at that point, Jax clarifies for Amika that the experiment is working to integrate the human mind into AI and the AI into the human mind so that someone could have all the benefits of a computer's mind, which would be logic, speed, and accuracy, and the human's mind, which is gut reactions, imagination, instinct, spontaneity, the things that make us human. Right. And that Sasuke's mind is being transferred into a machine, which is what the whole study is for. And Amika is shocked to learn that Zero isn't actually real, like he doesn't have a physical form anymore. That it's an illusion because Sasuke's real body died years ago. And what Amika has seen and interacted with was a virtual projection. And that Zero is Sasuke's mind successfully transmitted into data. Yeah. And he's basically an AI program.
1: He's uh, ones and zeros.
0: His name is Zero. Yeah. Seems funny. But I feel like she has a really hard time accepting this because she runs over all of her memories of Zero trying to come up with a time she's seen him physically interact with something or someone and she can't come up with anything. And she learns that the robot in the lab that she saw Zero controlling when she went in there to spy and found Tremaine instead was a physical form that he can sync up with and that he has the power to control. Right. But also, he could control one or he could control like dozens at any given time because he is just data. And so that's kind of horrifying.
1: Yeah, it kind of gives you that super soldier concern a little bit because like the reality is you could have all these robots that are being controlled by him going to war against other countries, realistically.
0: But with zero being the completion of the pr- program. Jax was able to go on and train to become Taylor's assassin. Right. And towards the end of their, you know, information dump or whatever you want to call it, Amika questions why Jax is doing this, and Jax explains that she thinks the real Sasuke, the one who remembers his friends and family and has emotional attachments to them, isn't fully gone. So they start coming up with a plan to get Zero out from under Taylor's thumb during the closing ceremony so that they can download all of Sasuke's memories into Zero and possibly get some form of him back.
1: Yeah, and honestly, that portion of it it gets kind of exciting. Because then you start seeing everything start playing out in a little faster motion at that point.
0: I also think it gets a little convoluted because you want to stop the algorithm, but you also want to get Sasuke back, but also like...
1: One is linked to the other a little bit.
0: Yeah, so that's really hard to figure out a good plan for that. Right. And shortly after Amika's pulled herself out of the dark world and she's done with Jax for the night, Roshan calls Amika to, quote, tell her about Shemaine's injury, and she ends up going to the hospital with everyone. And while she's there, Hammy tries to warn her off of the mission because it's too dangerous, and, like, no duh, it's too dangerous at this point. yeah.
1: But they don't know that she was ever actually at the Institute, so. Right, right.
0: But, like, it was too dangerous even before they did that, in my opinion, because you have two such powerful entities that are trying to use you.
1: Against one another.
0: And so, yeah. like, I personally feel like she was always in a compromising We're, position. Yeah,
1: she was stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's called it what it is. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And when she leaves there, she meets up with Hideo on his yacht. And this was one of my favorite scenes. Probably one of your least favorite scenes. I'm not surprised. Ew,
1: romance.
0: Ew, they're kissing. But not yet. So Amika ends up <laughs> link- linking up with him to show him her memory of Sasuke and explain what's been going on. But Hideo's sort of in denial for a little bit before he accepts it. And Emika ends up showing him the recordings of what happened, which I feel like was a mistake. Because, like, yikes. That's a lot. That's a lot.
1: Well, and on top of that, too, like, he's going to have a hatred level for Taylor at another level. Right. And you eventually see it, so. Yeah.
0: Well, it's like, not only was he kidnapped, but he was tortured in a way, and so, like. Not
1: in a way. He was tortured.
0: Okay, he was tortured. Yeah. So, like, that's a lot. Yeah. And Amika explains to Hideo that the only way of saving whatever is left of Susuke is to use the algorithm against Taylor, and so she finally sort of gets Hideo on her side in this conversation, because Hideo agrees to give Amika access to the algorithm if it'll save his brother, but he also ends up asking why Amika is doing what she's doing when it's so dangerous. And she sort of gives him a glimpse into how Hideo has impacted her life from when she was in that foster home to now. And then they have a romantic moment and a kiss and more than kiss.
1: And then kiss and then more than kiss some more.
0: And then it's the next day, one day until the closing ceremonies. And in the morning after their rendezvous, Hideo and Amika make a show of acting romantic on the deck of the yacht because they both know the Black Coat are watching or
1: watching in some way shape or form yeah
0: they have a conversation that's a little telling because amika discusses with hideo what he's going to do when they succeed where the algorithm is going to be in use if it'll be in use at all because the whole point was to find suzuki's kidnappers and they have right and hideo doesn't give any real answer and she realizes she might have to take it by force when all of this is over
1: it's going to be ugly before it's ever pretty.
0: Right. And then on the day of the Cross closing ceremony, there's like a running countdown through the chapter. It's like this many minutes left or hours or minutes, blah, blah, blah. And the pieces all start to move together into place in the Tokyo Dome. The top 10 players arrive. Zero messages Amika about their plan. And Amika links up with Hideo. And they're all under the dome.
1: The Tokyo Dome, not the Thunderdome.
0: Yes. Yeah. Right as the players enter into the world for the match, for the closing ceremonies, the game goes dark almost immediately, and Zero, Jax, and Taylor step onto the stage. And that's the end of that chapter.
1: Yeah, that was about where I ended on Monday night, and that's why I was so upset.
0: And Hideo immediately gives the command to his bodyguard to stop. When he's starting to make his way forward to protect Hideo, however, it seems like it's impacting the whole stadium, or most of the stadium, because he's using the algorithm to control whoever's under the algorithm's influence. Correct. And here's where Taylor addresses Hideo and drops the info that Ken is the one who's been giving the Black Coats all the information they've needed for the past several months, and that they've used against Hideo. Right. Right.
1: And I always thought Ken was up to something. Like, I'll be honest, I never he's really trusted kind of him.
0: He's always of sketchy because he's not given enough of a background, in my opinion. Like, he's not given enough fleshing out as a character in book one right. for him not to seem shady as crap in book two. Well,
1: on top of that, too, he's always trying to use people to manipulate Hideo. So it's like, he was always bad. Like, right. like to an extent, whether you think he was doing it for Hideo's good or for what was going to be bad, which is what you've been doing the whole time.
0: So. Yeah. Then the beta lenses patch as Hideo, Taylor, and Zero have a confrontation about what's been done to Sasuke. Taylor threatens to shoot Amika if Hideo doesn't hand over the algorithm. Jax threatens to shoot Taylor if she shoots Amika, and Hideo uses the algorithm to sever the connection between Taylor and Zero. But as Amika is telling him to delete the algorithm altogether, Hideo kills Taylor instead. Yeah.
1: No was... one's surprised.
0: Yeah, right. The yeah. fact that Amika is surprised is surprising.
1: I don't think she truly was all that surprised. She was just hoping he would do the right thing, I think, was some
0: right. And at the time, as it's unfolding, Zero seems to be the only one who isn't shocked by this turn of events. In fact, it's almost like he knew this would happen. And Zero ends up merging with the algorithm. It turns out that over the years, Zero has discovered ways to develop and circumvent Taylor's control over him. And while Hideo attempts to regain control over the algorithm, Zero has disconnected him from it, so it's too late. That's when Amika tries to use the hack against Zero to gain control of the algorithm, but it's too late and suddenly everything goes black. And this scene that happens here reminds me of other scenes that I've seen where people wake up and they're suddenly in the laboratory and they're just like strapped down. And I'm like, I've seen this before somewhere. (sighs) Because Amika wakes up strapped to a chair in the labs at the Japan Institute. And it looks like when Amika tried to use the hack against Zero in the dome, it created some sort of glitch that kept her from being fully under Zero's control under the algorithm. But... Also, it turns out the glitch impacted anyone that she has linked with in the past. And that means a few people that Zero doesn't know about.
1: Yeah, like Jax and Hideo.
0: So, Zero ends up wiping her NeuroLink account and rebooting her connection. And he has also brought back Hideo to the labs as well and drugged him. And the whole time Jax is sort of like playing along with the whole thing. But because she like is one of those control people. Yeah. And so she's... Supposedly preparing new lenses for Zero to force on Amika to get her under his control, but instead she ends up triggering the emergency sensor and frees Amika and Hideo. Right. They try to escape the Institute, but Zero is in all of the digital systems in the Institute, including entrances, exits, stuff like that. So Jax tells Amika to escape to the panic room and that she will cut off Jax.
1: Well, because the panic room is the only area that's not directly connected to everything else.
0: Right. So it's the one place Zero doesn't control. Right. And after fighting off some guards and Zero, Hideo and Amika manage to make it into the panic room, where Amika discovers that Hideo's been stabbed. At this point, Amika decides to get into Zero's mind with the new lenses and try to hack him that way. Yeah, And Hideo makes Amika link with him so that he can be a part of that whole thing. Right. So once she puts in the new lenses, she immediately runs the hack before she gets fully connected into the algorithm, and they end up starting a game of warcross with her old team to help break Suzuki out of the recesses of Zero's mind, which is where I feel like it gets a little muddled more towards the end here, which is why it's not a like five-star book for me.
1: Yeah, it there's a lot that goes on in a very little bit of time, and it's just stuff that's just so quick and just, we'll call it, more or less unnecessary. Like, slowly but surely, the people that are battling with her are being taken over by Sasuke's bots, basically.
0: Right, he's basically got a security bot. Yeah, like a like firewall army. actively going after them,
1: basically. And so, like, one by one, they're getting picked off Yeah. by said bot. To the point where it's just him and Amika left, and, and when I say him, I say Hideo, and then Zero, and they end up in uh, Hideo's childhood home, right?
0: Well, that's where, basically, they go through a couple different stages of these worlds in the Warcross game in Zero's mind, Yeah, and they're picked off one by one as they go, and there's still three of them left, I think, by the time that that's right. Zero Tremaine catches still there. The- Tremaine wasn't there. It was Roshan. No, it was uh, Roshan. Sorry. Yeah. When Zero catches him there, he's like, "Obviously, you would go here." Yeah. And it was so a trap. It picks off Roshan at that point, and they end up forcing themselves into like this very dilapidated city, which is the center of Zero's mind. But there are so many bots there that it's really hard to avoid them. But they're all avoiding Hideo while he fights Zero, as in like, "I will be the one to finish my brother." Or whatever. But Amika ends up getting caught by one of the security bots and she's forced to live through one of her memories, which is a side effect of getting caught. And it's basically Hideo and Zero facing off in this battle. But while all this is happening, Amika realizes that the reason her teammates have gone blank during the game of Warcross is because their minds have fully merged into Zeros. Yeah. And that's what it is when the bots attach to you. And she remembers Hideo telling her that information goes two ways in the Neuralink, not just one way. And she realizes that with the last of her energy she has left before Zero fully shuts her down in the game, she can force... Upload. An upload of the version of Sasuke that she downloaded from the Dark World.
1: Yeah, all the memories and files and stuff.
0: And forces that onto Zero. And... As it's getting uploaded, different versions of Sasuke are talking to Hideo. Eventually, the last iteration dismantles Zero and the world he's built, and Amika and Hideo wake up or come back to you in the panic room. And of course, the police are there, medical assistance is there to help Hideo, and they cuff Amika and take her off for questioning. In the end, the Neuralink itself is shut down as the police investigate the whole. Everything that has happened,
1: rightfully so,
0: with Amika and Hideo and Henka Games. And Amika and Jax testify at Hideo's Supreme Court trial. Jax is going to go to prison for the crimes, including murder, that she's committed for the Black Coats. Henka Games has replaced Hideo with Divya, Divya, Kapoor, yeah. Divya for CEO. But thanks to Jack's testimony, Hideo is acquitted of the charges against him except for second-degree manslaughter for what he did to Dr. Taylor. And now that the Neuralink is no longer up, people are using the internet in the same way they were before the link was developed. So there's none of the artificial stuff in the world and, like, it's not being used for work and things like that. Yeah. Amika ends up meeting with her friends one last time before everyone is set to go their separate ways following the loss of Warcross and the Neuralink. When she makes it back to her hotel room, the new CEO of Henka Games gets in touch with her and asks her if she's willing to come work for them to help rebuild the Neuralink by getting rid of the bad parts of the system. Because they feel like someone's going to do it. Whether it's we, us or not. We should be the ones to do it.
1: Since we already have the foundation, why screw it up and like let some other person get at it.
0: Yeah. And after that phone call, Zero connects with Amika, asking if she's going to take the job. And it turns out that the physical form of Zero has disappeared, but that Sasuke lives on as Zero in Data. So he's sort of everywhere and nowhere. Yeah. And in the last chapter, we see Hideo sentenced to house arrest since they don't think that someone of his status should be in prison for the full term of his sentence because something will happen to him Right, probably. In the end, Emika picks Hideo to get a consulting role in the project to bring back the Link. Which but makes
1: sense considering he's the one that built it originally
0: but it's very hands-off for him. He's not allowed to, like, actually touch any of the code or even use a computer with He's everything. more there
1: for, like, support, period. I honestly really enjoyed that book. I would say I probably would give it, like, a 4
0: or 4.25. I ended up giving it four stars. I think it's definitely better than the first one, but, like, the back half for me is just, like, a little too out there, I think.
1: It wasn't out there for me. I think it nailed it pretty much on the head. Like, I I enjoyed that portion of it. The stories that came up were, like, just so out of left field, though, that, like, that's why I was like, we're just going to skip this on the podcast because it's just, the memories were so ludicrous and ridiculous that it was just, like... Well,
0: I feel like the memories that happened during the game of Warcross in Zero's mind are all supposed to make you care more about the team because I think, like my chief complaint with the first book, we don't know enough about... Her team to really love them as I feel like you're supposed to.
1: And in turn, you don't understand the memories that well because of the same thing. But I feel
0: like they were dropped in a little too late to make us care about them, but they were trying to make us care about them more.
1: Yeah, I can agree with that.
0: I mean, overall, the duology is pretty good. I think definitely the second is better than the first, though I do have some issues with the back half of the second book.
1: I have to agree. I think the second book is better than the first. I liked them both, though. Honestly, I think the duology was one of my more favorite duologies I've read, just because I connect on the gaming level I think with it so much, and I also enjoy sci-fi. So
0: more or less than Vicious,
1: I would still say Vicious is number one duology, but not by much. I think honestly, it was a re- it was a really good series, and I- I'm more of a sci-fi person, so that's why I feel like I attached more to it. But
0: see, I don't know if I want you to read. The Murderbot Diaries or not? Because if you don't love it, I'll just kick you over <laughs> and over.
1: Yeah, and if you kick me more than once, I will tackle you to the floor to stop you from kicking me, so...
0: And then we're going to have a full-on brawl about Murderbot. So yeah. I don't want that to happen. <laughs> All right. But I do think we definitely need to keep you going with action things and sci fi things, so I'm going to have to cultivate your list for Season 3 at some point. Yeah. But... Thank you guys for sticking around to listen to us overly explain Wild Card. We'll get into it next week with some turtles all the way down.
1: I'm just hoping there's a lot of turtles in the book.
0: I think there are exactly zero turtles in the book.
1: Well, I'm already upset then.
0: I'm sorry. But in the meantime, make sure you guys are checking out all of our social media, which will be linked in the show notes.
1: And we'll catch you next Tuesday for the sports episode. Bye, guys.
0: Bye.